welcome to selfdiscoveryradio.com. With over 1,400 shows, we have the answers for you. Enjoy your listening on selfdiscoveryradio.com. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Their Story Matters. I am your host, Sarah Troy, and my guest today is Cantana Tully. We're going to be talking about interracial adoption, racism, and lost identity, kind of very apropos to what is going on in the world right now. She's written a beautiful book called Split at the Root, a memoir of love and lost identity. And she is herself adopted, so she knows this journey very, very well and is speaking from the heart, from the experience. She's had an incredible story to, to, cha- uh, to share with us. Uh, she was adopted into a white family, um, and there really wasn't any rational thing growing up. It was more about when she came to America that she discovered it. Uh, she was encouraged to, to live a fairy tale life. Um, it was when she reached her late 40s and she became increasingly at odds with herself that she discovered that uh, what seemed to be magical to others was not necessarily so. Eventually, uh, she discovered issues more important than details of her life and needed to share wi- uh, with, her, with an audience. So it's about ethnic misplacement due to having been raised within a culture amongst people who are different to herself. And, you know, the structure and the story of uh, layers of, of great privilege and simultaneous disinheritance. So let's take this journey because we see a lot of adoptions happening today. And there are adoptions of children from faraway places of totally different cultures. And some people will just bring them up in the white culture as white children, even though they're not. And what's in the DNA? The DNA is a culture that stood the test of time. Does that have an effect? Do people look at children differently because they're of mixed, um, either mixed race or parents are a different uh, race and color to them? We're living in a very prejudicial, judgmental, racist society in this day and age, 2016. It's really time that we grow up and we stop looking at people by their color, by their sexuality, by their, uh, by, their, uh, by their race, by their faith, and start looking at each other from the inside out. So let's find out what her journey has been, al- uh, been like and really what obstacles she had to face and uh, why she wrote this book and what it means to us now. So welcome to the show, Kentana. Thank you so much, Sarah. I feel privileged to be on your show. I oh, love it. Privilege is all ours. You know, you, you were um, brought up uh, by white parents and kind of you really didn't know the difference at that time, did you? They were just your parents, so uh, a different color. No, I did, I, I did know the difference very, very well. Um, and that is one of the things that people don't pay attention to when they adopt a child from another race. The child sees that it's different to parents, sees that it's different to society. All the child has to do is look in the mirror and, um, and will become aware of it. What, um, what in my case, what had played a part was that I also uh, knew my birth mother mm. and I knew her as being dark. Now, I, my story started 75 years ago. So I have a very long trajectory of looking at at um, my upbringing and societies and how they have changed through all these years because I've experienced an awful lot of it. Yes. So um, I, I was born and was in Guatemala City and I was there for 15 years when the first issues began to manifest as far as my German family, they started realizing, my gosh, she has hang-ups. <laughs> but they didn't know how to deal with it because there was no black community with which I could, um, I could identify or I would be able to get some positive feedback. So... Um, going back to your saying, young children don't pay attention, it was always foremost 
on my mind. But I didn't know that mm. until, <laughs> until I was in my 40s. That's the joke. Because, you know, I came to the States in my 30s and I had married a white American. I had lived in Europe. I had worked, lived in Europe. I'd been very successful there. At a time in Germany, France, Italy, Spain, where people were welcomed. It was the 60s, 70s, and um, the atrocities of uh, the Hitler regime uh, were being looked at in a in in a way that positive construction had to come from that. The Germans and Germany and France was always at war mm-hmm. for centuries. Here they got together. So I was a beneficiary of a situation in Europe that was great, and they considered me exotic, and so. The fascination my German family had with me continued in Europe with Europeans being fascinated by me and offering me all kinds of, you know, perks for as such. And then I married a white American, and after about five years of marriage, seven years of marriage, we moved to the States because he needed to work here. And that is when I say the wheels came off the cart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was completely derailed. I didn't belong. I understood I didn't belong to the black community. The black community looked at me in a peculiar way, I felt, because I had an accent. And I quite obviously didn't feel comfortable among them. And then... Uh, in the black, in the white community, I knew from history that they were not all that um, <laughs> welcoming Welcome to black mm-hmm. people. So I didn't have a society where I felt comfortable. I was made to feel comfortable, but I didn't feel comfortable. Right. And so um, I needed to separate as best I could from blacks. And I went to college and I got a doctoral degree and I became a professor. And at that point, with all so many times having to identify what I was, I realized I didn't have an identity and um, I needed to have therapy. And so through therapy, I was taken back to looking at my upbringing that had been so stellar and so wonderful and had offered me so many opportunities and recognized that the great difficulty in self-understanding lies in, in accepting your culture, accepting your race, accepting your place in society. And I wrote the book for parents who adopt Children, I call them exotic children Mm -hmm. because they don't, you know, they are almost conversation pieces and the kids know that and they play to it and they hate it. Um, And so um, for them to understand that no matter how much they love the child, how much they protect and support the child, if they don't introduce the child to a culture, the original culture, as you mentioned, the DNA mm-hmm. of the background of how, what has transpired for centuries to create that individual, that individual is not going to ever feel comfortable in his or her skin. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, we can't ignore our DNA, you know, where. Um, our DNA is something that actually gets, you know, passed down from lifetime to lifetime. And if we're just in a different vessel each lifetime. Um, but, you know, the DNA that comes from your heritage, from your birth parents, from their parents, it's so integrated in there. And then, you know, all of a sudden you're in a different culture and a different thing and they love you and they're looking after you and you can't fault it. But there's always that something missing, isn't it? And if you don't have any of the, you know, people of that culture around you that understand what it is that's missing, you just go through life knowing there's something missing and not knowing how to find it. And not knowing how to behave. Mm-hmm. 
because part of the problem with me was that I was an actress in Germany and a model. And the and, and, uh, and looking Europe, at you, my darling, you're still so actually stunningly beautiful, so you can still continue modeling. Yeah, I used to be kind of cute. <laughs> oh, you still are. You but, still are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh, thank you. But um, so they, um, whenever they needed an American, I mean, I never had to audition mm. because they, they, they just wrote parts for me or if there was a part of an American, it was, she played the American, mm-hmm. you know. She's black, but she's fluent in German, and we don't have to have her chewing gum or wearing boots, you know. She, just by her appearance, we'll know she's American. When I came to the States, I knew that I couldn't play an American black woman. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I just kind of, right then and there, gave up. You know, although I did, I did have a recurring part in an educational series as a Latina, you know, Hispanic um, teacher who spoke Spanish and English, um, you know, in the class for the kids. And then also um, a very big movie, but um, that is another story. But the thing is, I just... You you don't know how to behave among people who look like you, mm-hmm. and you don't know how people who do not look at you um, react to you because everyone is going to be basically friendly except black people have a way of looking at you. <laughs> I always thought <laughs> where they wouldn't, you know, accept. You know, it's kind of, you know. I have to say, ultimately, I did get there, but it took years of therapy Mm -hmm. to feel comfortable among black people. Right. Yeah. Um, You know, I can can understand that. Um, You know, it's kind of sad, though, that we're still in a world where, you know, the skin is the dictation and, you know, not the character, not the soul, not the spirit of a person. And, you know, I understand that each culture, you know, black, white, pink, yellow, or polka dot, you know, everybody has a culture that they come from. Uh, And that culture is very much in the DNA and very much, you know, resonance of who a person is. And I think, you know, rather than you not being black enough, you know, maybe it's just the culture um, of the African-American people or African people per se that, um, that you were missing, you know, because we can bring our culture i'm british it doesn't matter how long i've been out of england i'm british that's that's it i've been out 40 something years i'm still very british it's in my dna it's the way i was brought up and i will always be so but maybe we can to we can acknowledge that there is a culture that's to do with where we're from and um, as opposed to the color do you think we can get there um the cultures are very diverse um, for instance, Africa is a huge continent with so many different races. Mm-hmm. They're all black, but they're different races. They have different traditions. They, East Africa is so different from West Africa. It's so different from Northern Africa. Sub-Saharan Africa is so obviously different from North Africa. It's different from the Nubian area of Africa. But they're black. Yes. And um, it's a different thing. In Latin America, for instance, we have blacks. You have Caribbeans. Every single island is different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you have black Latin Americans in Colombia and Argentina. You have them, you know, in Guatemala. You have black people in all of these countries. Every single culture is different. So it is complex. African Americans are a breed all their own because of the extended and cruel um, slave history, history of slavery. And it wasn't like that in Latin America, although class consciousness is endemic and it's still there. And you're there, the lighter classes are are uh, European extraction, then you have the browner classes and then the darker classes. Although 
racism in Latin America is personal and not, um, uh, but is it political yeah. or, or the way it is in the state yes. where it has to crush barriers. You can marry, you could be black and marry into upper society and after a while, the personal aspect of the whole thing is just forgotten. So I mean, the um, personal aspect can be dealt with. Yeah. But the other one is the, is the hard one, and that's the states. The states is very difficult. I, in Canada, I can't believe it's like that in Canada. Canada is so different. I'm just thinking, I'm moving to Canada if Trump becomes president. <laughs> We welcome you. <laughs> I mean, everybody. Be you and quite a number of others. Canada. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So massive. I mean, everyone I know, I was thinking, am I moving back to Guatemala? No, I'm moving to Canada. <laughs> well, apart from the weather, you'll enjoy us, definitely. Um, you know, that uh, I think, you know, from, from an outside perspective, and I lived in South Africa for 11 years, and I was there during the apartheid. You know, one of the reasons I left was because of that and also the MCP, a lot of male chauvinism pigs going on at the time. And, uh, you know, just being a woman was still hard. You know, I was a white woman, but still hard to get ahead because there was such, you know, machoism going on. And I left and I came here to Canada. Um, but, you know, you're right about the different um, races there. That You know, you have the Bantu, you have the Koza, you have the Zulu, you have everybody else, and they don't mix amongst themselves. You know, they're a tribe that stick very much amongst their own culture and uh, and keep themselves very, very, you know, you know, together and not integrational at all on any level. Of course, now that apartheid has been lifted, it's totally different. You know, a lot of spreading of seeds and wings has happened and I haven't been back so I can't speak to how it is now but you know you had each culture had their own rhythm they had their own way of living life their own beat and I think that is something that um, if you adopt a child you know of a different color uh, to look at the beat of their culture look at the rhythm of their culture the history of their culture it's not so much their color but that culture that they come from, that tradition that's so very much int in integrated in them, but they don't know how to express it because there's nobody around them to show them. And so if you are going to adopt a child from any other color, any other nation, know the child's history, that you know, their culture's history, and make sure that you bring them up with that sense of history within them. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Um, and um, that is what is that, that belongs to the very essential parts. But for instance, the child from, adopted from China, whether she's mainland China, Taiwan, or wherever, um, it's important for them to go back to to their place of origin to see because every little different child, every little exotic adopted child. Um, come is going to be burdened with what the white society sees in the culture they come from. So they, they're burdened by stereotypes. And the Asian children are burdened by the stereotype that they're hardworking and mm -hmm. that they're methodical and that they're very scientifically oriented and whatnot. And so I would say also that it is important to have those children recognize the stereotypes. Black children recognize. It's easier to talk about the black stereotypes because so many of them are negative yes. and the children see on television mm -hmm. what goes on and that festers in their mind in a way that they might not want to talk about it. But they need to understand all stereotypes, that they are stereotypes. And because China is such a huge, you know, the Chinese population is so enormous and it may outnumber everyone else in the world by I don't know how many, I think it's important for children adopted from China that they learn Mandarin or whatever the, the dominant language mm -hmm. for Chinese interacting with the West. Is 
because while Chinese are now learning, you know, Western languages, there's so many Chinese that in 50 years, China will, Chinese will be, you know, Mandarin probably will be the foremost language. So I just, well, that is my little soapbox <laughs> business for, for today because I do think children nowadays need to learn Mandarin. Um, in addition I, I to other I mean, languages. My children are half Chinese. Uh, and, oh, there you go. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, you know, they, they know about the racial slurs, you know, you chink, um, you slit eyes, you this, you that, you yeller. I mean, you know, they went through all of that. And uh, I recently did a show on that where I asked my children, you know, how, how did it feel? And they said, well, you know, they were so loved at home. And then they had both Chinese and, and Western mother that they felt secure within themselves. And they rather looked upon the other people, not in fear, or not in anger, but in sadness of their ignorance. And you Oh know, yeah, right. But that is because they had exposure to you and you were giving them yes. that positive feedback to un- for them to understand how limited these you know people are. Yeah. And how ignorant we, people are. And you know, that a child isn't. You know, children are drawn to you know the vibration of another child you know that you know that kind of chemistry of of enjoyment and joy and they just want to play with that kid and they have they have don't care a damn what color that kid is and then along come the parents with their issues and their their vibrational that goes out of um you know d- uh, disapproving um and then the child feels that and they don't know why because they don't know what prejudice is or racism is or judgment is. That is something they learn from the parents. You don't see a racist child, right? Not no, of course not. Children are not. No. Exactly. So, you know, what is it about human beings that there's this need to um, criticize each other because of our color or because of our race? You know, why can't we I think it's that, fear. Know, I, yeah, I think it's fear. I think it's fear. It's fear that um, I, uh, I, I can only say from the black people, they're never, they haven't been given the, um, the, respect. the respect and, and the credit for all the contributions they have brought to, the, to, to humanity. Mm-hmm. I have a good sense, but I always say I'm going to do it, but I haven't started. I started doing the research of, uh, of writing the history of Africa prior to the slave trade, because they related with Europeans uh, on, a, on the very same level. Um, they were equals. Mm-hmm. Africa was not inferior, was not seen as inferior. And so you have people who interacted in Europe and lived among aristocracy in Europe, became part of European aristocracy or nobility even. And so um, once the slave trade began um, and the fear of, and the primitivity of the people of who, were, who were slave traders, because it wasn't anyone with any decency or with anything who would, who would have done it. Uh, very primitive people, very primitive people colonized South America, very primitive, cruel people colonized North America. So there you have it. And so, and from that, uh, foundation of, of Africans having created the wealth in America and Europe on the backs of Africans, mm-hmm. uh, Europe developed. And there's a saying that in all these castles that they were, that the mortar is African blood, which in many ways is true, of course. And so the fear of of um, Africans being educated, they weren't, ed- well, Africans, and Africa is a different story, but Africans who were enslaved 
were not educated for obvious reasons and uh, kept kept stupid. And those who had the energy to flee and the energy to improve the, the lot um, were feared, of course. And you see it also in sports. The longest time you didn't have baseball players and you didn't have basketball players who were black. <laughs> and, you know, it was always the minute we let those in, there none of us have work. Right. And my husband, too, and he, he was white. And he said, look, when he, when he was young and he was doing commercials, he said it was only white guys doing commercials. You had women sometimes, the men were spokesmen, sometimes they had a woman's book, but there certainly was no competition from any of the other ethnic groups in the country. Right. Any other <laughs> and he always group, said, yeah, the no. minute they are allowed in, the pie is just shrivels up and everyone fears that they don't have work. And, and you so, know, you know, the stereotype and the negativity, yes. the Irish and the French, saying, you know, the friend, you know, all the minorities as they come into this country, particularly the states, are um, are made to feel inferior for fear that they might take the food away from and you those know, when, who, you, when you look at repression and you look at poverty and you look at a lack of education and you look at a society that is treated like garbage, you know, like they're worthless, whether, you know, it's black, white, you know, um, Mexican, when you treat people like that, you have to expect there's going to be crime. It's, it's a done Oh, yeah, and retaliation. A, and retaliation. retaliation. Absolutely. But, you know, what we're seeing in the States right now, and especially, you know, in the last um, uh, week or so, the killing, you know, the guy in the car, uh, and the other guy just pulled down and shot. I mean, just that's murder. I'm sorry. You know, it's it's bullies in uniform. And, you know, as uh, the Dallas mayor said, you know, that the percentage of the cops are good guys fighting, you know, the real crime. And then you have those bad apples. But it's those bad apples that are setting their precedence. For that guy to go around shooting all those cops, it was the wrong thing to oh, do. Oh, yeah. Totally. I, you but know, you can understand uh, what why. I love about England is the cops don't have guns. Yes. Well, I think a bit more now, but no, growing up um, recently, no. Yeah, well, the recently things are getting just yes. uh, escalating yeah. there, too. But it's just, I just wish that, um, that something were done about this proliferation of weapons in this country, in the United States. Because that is extremely scary. In a country where people are fed garbage, you know, the wheat these people eat, the amount of meat, all the hormones in the meat, hormones in eggs, hormones, everything GMO, that has kept and increasingly keeps society stupid. So in in the States, you really have to prepare your own food, you have to buy your organic stuff and you have to do it. And that's what keeps, those people can still think, but the masses can't think. And the masses will go along with anything, the media, that obviously also eats that stuff. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, know. We, know, we know who controls the media, right? You know, they're, they're puppeteers, they're spokespeople for, oh, yes. you know, the, the establishment. You know, if they would have treated Bernie Sanders yes. the way they treated Trump, yes. Trump would have been off the radar, yeah. you know. Yeah, they gave just, him. They gave him like uh, ten times or more than that of free uh, media, and you know, let's look at his platform. It's all about building up the hysteria and the fear. Uh, and but it's yeah, very because he's an entertainer. He is, but he's a, a segregator. It's all about. You know, as you said, he gets in, you want to run, you're black, you don't want to be there. It has nothing to do with your education, um, your economics, your intelligence. It's to do with the color of your skin. And there are so many people in America that, you know, whether they're Chinese or whether they're Mexican or whether they're black, are petrified of him getting in because God knows what he would do. Yeah, well, it's going to be terrible. I mean, it really is. 
the worst of I mean, he is totally the white supremacist, and and that's you know, and it's talk about going backwards. Everything that the the black people have fought for in the last century, to even get where you are now, even though that judgment, that racism, that prejudice is still there. You know, the more of the equality of being able to get into better jobs and have better education, and really, you know, truly. No, well, the fact is, the fact is that he is a response to Obama, because. Obama was shackled. He could not govern. He had to go along with so many things because he, the Republican Party, just simply was not going to allow him yes. to move. No. And um, you don't, we don't have, yeah, we don't have, we don't have people with a vision in this country anymore. Mm-hmm. There are no statesmen, people who had a vision for the people. Now it's political party cronyism yeah. that has nothing to do with um, with having with seeing. Obama had a vision. He has an education. He's educated. He is so well read. He is his cultural um, sensitivity is fantastic his wife, his children, such an educated president. We haven't had one in a long time. Yeah. And for him to have, his, his legacy is going to live on, but it's probably not, it'll take another 25 to 30 years before it is accepted as what it was and what he brought to the platform in this country. But, you know, I mean, even... Uh, what's his name? Trump uh, debating whether Obama was was an American citizen. I, I mean, and wasting so much time about yes. it and so much energy about it. Yeah. Uh, it's just disgusting. It's, it's disgusting. But there's just nothing that can be yeah. done. And you know, but yeah. let's let's look at Obama. I mean, he gets a bad rap, but he had the hurricane against him all along the way. In, in a lot of ways, they shackled him, they enslaved him. Uh, you know, where you may be president mate, but we're not going to give you any power. We're going to block you at every turn. And that's what at they've every done turn. every turn. Now, had that not been, you know, uh, pay attention, America, had your white men not blocked him at every turn, imagine what he could have accomplished. Because look at the accomplishments he has made up against that tornado, up against that hurricane of people, of, you know, of people deliberately holding him back. And let's also look at it this way. He was the first black president. So one, I suppose, can't expect him to reach the greatest heights because he is up against all the repression. But he's opened the door to others. And the next person that comes in, they've just got to have a bigger drill to drill through the Congress to to get the changes done. Oh, yeah. Well, I just that's one of the things. You just simply hope that Somebody has the nerve to to kick old people out. Yes. You can't serve in Congress when you have Victorian principles. <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. That, you really shouldn't be in there if no. you're 100 years old. It exactly. It needs to Leave be to people be by yeah. young people who, yeah. have the, who have the vision for their country for their future, for their children. Not someone who has great-grandchildren he doesn't know the names of. Right. But then there again, look at Bernie Sanders. He's 74. He's Jewish. When he was asked about his faith, he says, it's unity. It's about togetherness. You hurt, I hurt. You happy, I'm happy. He has more following of cross-culture, cross-faiths, cross-sexes. I mean, unbelievable. This guy is like a... He's certainly a revolutionary, and and you know, I who, know. who would expect, you know, a, a very dogmatic, principled, you know, for the people, Jewish guy getting out there, and um, being the person that's changing the tide. Is he going to be? Empowered? I think that part of the reason he didn't he didn't get media support is also yes. that he has he has uh, us looking at. Ourselves. Palestine <laughs> having having uh, a right to exist. Palestinians having 
the need to have a home yeah. and they should not be encroached on. And that will kind of rattle a lot of cages. But, you know, he's rattled so many cages of the 1%. I mean, you know, he, he, he won't get in power unless a miracle happens, which we can still hope for a miracle. But what he's done is shaken up the establishment and he's educated the people and he's united them in voice and action, which they must not let go of now. They must keep that movement going. He started it. He got the momentum. Now it's up to the people to hold whoever is elected accountable because now they know what's going on and it's now to hold that one percent accountable to hold uh racist cops accountable to hold the whole system that's going on the monosanto all of this accountable you know what the problem is now so as a humanity we've got to get together and stand up against it you know he's done his job he's woken us up and now people have got to come together and carry it forward well, hopefully it'll work. It's only I'm just going to work fearful that yeah, we've got to keep fueling it. Uh, it's only going to work if if all those if his supporters also come to vote. Because if his supporters don't vote, then we have Trump. Because Hillary is just you know nobody trusts poor Hillary. And I don't know why I say poor. Yeah. <laughs> Well, she's poor. She's poor in in uh, in, in content. You know that it's when you when your entire career is is being a puppet for the establishment. You know how much of you is speaking out there, and how much are, is you is. I don't think she's a puppet. I think that Hillary is every bit uh, greedy and ambitious. She is ambition on stilts. And that's why she made, she, you know, she's a good bedfellow for all banks and stuff now. I mean, I would love to see Bernie. Um, he, you know, he's, he's out of the picture at the present moment unless something miraculous happens. Um, we don't want Trump in. So obviously people are going to Hillary because they don't want Trump in. Um, but I would love to see Bernie um, either as a vice president or as somebody out there biting her heels all along the way, making sure she stays on track. Yeah, I know. That's if she'll let him. You know, that's that's what, um, if she wants to in the popularity of the people, you know, and uh, Bernie still wants to have some power, you know, and he's a person that is, you know, he's not too proud to do that. Um, you know, they say they're talking right now. I don't know what about, but... You know, I think he's going to be biting at her heels to hold her accountable. And if you look at her dialogue, it's changed. Um, you know, she started talking Bernieism. Um, because oh, she, good. Right. Yeah, so when she always talked Bernieism, Bernie got points for one thing, and then she'd have it too. You yeah. know, Bernie would bring up something, yes. then she would. You know, she was always the catalyst for new thought. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, you know, let's, let's go back to adoption, et cetera, because we can talk politics all day. And, and really, when we look at it, being a person, you know, of color is, is always going to be a political problem until the politics is cleaned up. Um, because it is the political route that is causing the discord. And there is still that mentality amongst, uh, you know, white people that blacks are still slaves. Um, and while you've still got that mentality, there's still going to be that repression. And there's another revolution coming up along that line as well. And let's just hope that it's not going to cost lives. But let's go back to, you know, it, adoption. You came from a world where really you were just, you were, you were treated as a white person and the token black. But you had a good life there. And then you come over to America. You're married to a white guy. You're not really accepted by the black people because you just don't know how to really integrate with them. You've never had that. But you also come across more racism than you've ever seen in your life. How did you cope with that? Other than needing to go to a therapist and and work, you know, your roots out. You know, coming from being so respected to who you are, to them the challenges of having to prove who you are. How was that? Um, what I did was uh, I hadn't finished 
my education. I was getting a degree in um, in languages to become an interpreter, an international interpreter and translator. So I didn't finish that degree. When I came to the States, miraculously, a, college, a, a, a high school friend of my husband's met, um, bumped into him, recognized him in a train, and they started talking and she suggested that I go and get a degree, being that I hadn't finished it at a college where you can get the credit for life experience, that experience that is academic. So in less than a year, I was able to get a bachelor's degree in cultural studies. And there, of course, um, I went to school because I realized that I couldn't work, that I couldn't work as an actress because I didn't want to, and that, and this was in upstate New York, mm-hmm. not California anymore, and that um, it wouldn't be a bad idea to get to the degree. In getting my validation for the three, four, five languages I had at the time, I had French and Italian also in, in my kitty, um, the, um, the evaluator who was the, the the uh, dean of languages at the university in Albany, New York, suggested that I might as well get a, a master's. And he said, not only a master's, but your PhD material. And I realized right then and there that if there was one thing that would separate me farthest <laughs> from mm-hmm. those black people who were committing the crimes and who I thought were, you know, that I really couldn't relate to because I always saw myself in the worst possible light rather than in the best possible light. So to see me in a better light, I pursued the degrees which came very easy, uh, became very easily, <laughs> and then I, um, I was right away because of the degree, because of yeah, the way I was, I was offered a tenure track position and I ended up getting tenure also. So my way of dealing with it was get the best education you can um, and then uh, you will regain or you will gain the kind of respect mm-hmm. but no longer as the pretty kid, no longer as this enchanting exotic being (laughs) but as someone with intellect, intelligence who could stand in front of people and talk to them, etc, etc, etc so that is how I dealt with it and that's what has helped me to this day So you you feel that if you hadn't got that education um, you would have just been clumped uh, Oh I would have gone back to Europe you would have. I would have gone back. I would have left. I would have gone back to Europe. So you felt that without a question. Without a question, I would have gone back to Europe. So I mean, you know, having you know come from Europe and travelled a great deal in Europe, you know, is that, um, you know, I noticed that colour was just not seen. You know, people were recognised as as being black, but they were French black or they were German black. You know, and that they, they were just that. Um, and the, the, there wasn't that stigma, you know, there wasn't that issue to do with it. And, um, you know, I, I mean, South Africa had the apartheid, you kind of expect that. And, you know, they're still going through that transition now of, uh, you know, changing over. But with America, you would have thought by now that they would have got their act together um, and, you know, changed the way things are done. But it still seems to be something that you know obviously at the present moment there's well america is a huge it's a huge com- uh, right. country yeah and america the south is different to the north the um the coastal states are different to the central states and um rural america is completely different to urban america so it can't just be said America, as it can't be said Africa, as it can't be said yeah. Asia. Yeah. You know, um, it is a complex society, and even though electing, you know, you need to have a certain proportion of the population to be elected, it, the big problem in America is that you don't get enough people out to vote. Yeah. So all the wrong ones end up voting, if there is anything. So it's it's complex. 
And um, in California, obviously, people are not. Northern California is different to Southern California, but people are much more open. They're, they certainly don't have issues with race. Yeah, they do, but they don't know it. But right. but um, they do, but they don't know it. Only someone who has color will notice it. Uh, completely different than Iowa. Completely different than Ohio. Completely different. You know. So there you go. Um, it's it's complex. It's something that can't be explained away. It always needs to be seen as a prism. Society needs to be seen as a prism. Uh, blacks in Asia are not welcome. That's a generalization, but for the most part, that is true as well. So we need to, nothing can be changed fast. No. I think a lot of things need to change, and the, the underdeveloped world, the lesser developed world, the lesser developed societies um, will have a chance when the developed societies collapse. That's as simple as that. Yeah. And is this what you're seeing right now? Is this what oh, you're yeah. Well, you know, the United States is a third world country. Yes. Look, look at all of the, uh, the, the infrastructure, yeah. the roads, the bridges, the, you know, buildings, the infrastructure of this country. Nothing is being done about it. Right. Or if, it's in word only, but not so much in action. Yes. So there are so many things in this country. I mean, it is a beautiful country. I love the United States, and I, you know, I don't mind being an American. But I do have to say that um, we export what we don't need, and we import. We import yes. what we don't need, and we export what we need. Mm -hmm. And that is a third world economy. Yes. Yes. And, you know, the, it's the priorities are all wrong. You know, so much money spent on wars. What about your people? Um, you know, yeah, I mean, there's no vision. As yeah. I said, there is absolutely no, there's no, no vision. And it's criminal. No vision. It's, it's all, criminal. it's all money. Yeah. No, but it's money. And it's, it's greed and money. How much money is spent on is electing criminal. someone? You know, that oh, money well, that is electing know, somebody, imagine putting that money back into society back into the roads, back into, you know, medical, back into the food system. You know, all that money they, f they throw away buying a politician. You know, if there was a, a was, it takes somebody with guts to come across and say, uh-uh, this is the cap on getting elected. But still we're getting back to politics again. I know, I know. But <laughs> I, you know, I you have to get it, you back. It's the root. <laughs> I have to leave. I have, I have to leave now. In, in a little while, I'm so sorry. Okay, no, we've you know, I have an I have I have an appointment. Um, fortunately, I don't have to leave the house, but I have an appointment in about half an hour again. Okay, well, we still got ten minutes here, so, so you know, you've you've got an awful lot of children today, either of mixed race, um, and you've got an awful lot more of adoption going on today than ever before. So what would be the tips that you would share with somebody that's adopting a child from a different race and a different culture? Well, we spoke about that. The child needs to be, should be integrated into, into that race. And so even if they bring the child, in, you know, if the child is growing up entirely in a white environment, not to fear the child with people of its own ethnic background. So if you have a child from China, take it to see see that it incorporates, see that another Chinese mother yeah. will invite it to lunch or to dinner or take it to the movies. You know, if you have um, a black child, if it's an African child, try and get into an African community and see if the child can go to church with them or if you and your child can go to church. Trust the other Trust the people in the culture of your child that they will take care of your child if you leave it with them. Yeah. Um, and that there is nothing wrong with saying oh, would you, for an hour, you know, for two hours, for overnight. There's always, you know, when you get to know people and they get to understand what you're trying to do with your child, incorporate it into their culture to give the child the best possible 
the most rounded vision of itself that um, they will find they will find help and support in doing that absolutely but it's also sharing of cultures isn't it you get to know that culture too you know it's um immerse yourself into the cultures of others invite them into your culture you know it, that integration again you know everybody yes well the, the i do understand integration but i also want to say that people who adopt children from another race also think that their own race is superior mm-hmm. and what i'm trying to say is that by letting the child by itself letting showing your own child that you trust its original culture mm-hmm. by letting it be with people of that culture you don't always have to be present you don't always have to invite everybody over for chili or hot dogs or whatnot because you're always there it's allowing the child to navigate be itself with yeah. yeah to be with others and and, and show that you respect others uh, respect another culture another race and trust them and trust them with what's most precious to you which is your child and what would you say about a child wanting to find uh, its um, birth parents oh yeah it depends on how you you introduce that mm-hmm. uh, increasingly one is it was to, uh, adoptive children are very early hearing on that hearing that they're adopted and perhaps they're not you know they're not worried about it mm-hmm. perhaps it's too early to introduce them you need to kind of figure out for the child you need to be wide open and listen when the child wants to know more about his culture and more about his race more about the birth parents time to do it yeah time yeah. to talk about it yeah. time to be open about it if the child is two if the child is 10 if the child up to 10 doesn't ask any questions you know that you're probably doing it right. Mm-hmm. And if they do want to meet their child, no matter you know what the circumstances were of giving that child up, it's never to put any judgment on it. You know, everybody has a reason, right? Sure, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, if, yeah. you're, if you're adopting a child of any other culture, it's to immerse them as much as they possibly can in their own culture. Um, even you know, and and obviously, if they find something that they love of that culture and they want to bring it home, you know, it doesn't leave it at the door. You know, bring it in. It's it's part of who they are and their identity, and uh, you know, kind of immerse it within within the home front, right? Yes. Yeah. And you know, I mean, there's some children who are you know come home with a kid from school. Um, who doesn't, you know, who 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 is unfortunately less fortunate? Yeah. Um, whose parents always fight and things like that. It's the same, you know. Some children have tremendous empathy for others, and um, your adopted child may have that. It may not. Yeah. But um, be willing to to see to see what the child will do and what not. I mean, I was always touched by my son, who's biracial, but, um, and he, we moved a lot, uh, around a lot when he was little. But when, he, uh, when new people, new children came to his class from another school or something mid-year, he was always the first to make friends with them. He was always the first to bring them to our home. He was always, and the parents of these, children let me know later how grateful they were that he was always bringing, you know, making it easier for their children in class, in school, getting to know others, protecting them, not allowing anyone to bully them. It was great. Yes. That, um, but that is, I never told him to do it. I, you know, I always say, oh, here he comes with somebody else from school. <laughs> yes. Um, I had an open house, house policy. You know, people, they brought kids home for tea and then who's staying for dinner? Um, you know, my house was big enough that if somebody was having troubles at, at home, I had a safe haven. Um, and, uh, you know, it didn't matter, um, you know, what was going on, you know, 
what their race, their colour or anything else is, is that when a child is in trouble, it's, um, it's good for them to know that there's somebody they trust and that they can go to. Right, right. So yeah. people need to read your book, Split at the Root, and, um, you know, Memoir of Love and Lost Identity, and kind of understand your journey and also the tips that you share to people who are adopting, the, um, you know, other race children. And, uh, you know, it's, I say I wish that we could be colorblind and rather more culturally aware, but, you know, our color is our culture, isn't it? And if we understand what that culture is and allow that, in you know, that integration, that invitation of it, you're creating a whole person and not just segregating them into one realm when they are so much more. So it's imp important that they embrace their the culture from which they came from as well as the culture that they're living in. Right. Okay, so to get your book, they can get it at uh, splittheroot.com? Yes, split at the root in one word, splittattheroot.com. Um, uh, at Amazon, they can go to their bookstore and order it, and uh, the bookstore will then provide it. And, um, yeah, and I'd love it if they would write a review. It's so hard to get reviews, but I would love it if, uh, if a, a reader would find it um, worthy of, of, of saying something about it. Right. Um, the, the book has been, a, has been um, uh, required reading in master's program at the University of Southern California That's in right. the Master of Social Work. It has been at the Georgian Court Institution in um, uh, undergraduate studies in English literature. Um, the story as such is very accessible. There are no villains. Um, there's a protagonist, and that is me, and it's told from the perspective of the person of color first in my youth, how I absorb things as a child, and it's told as a story. Mm -hmm. I think that part of its success, it's been in, um, it's been read in over 15 or 20 book clubs. Uh, part of its success is that it is an engaging story and that it's easily accessible and it makes people think. People start grappling with issues of identity, loss of identity, misplaced identity, and, um, and society, how, how society helps shape identities as well. And, you know, you do not have to be, you know, an adoptee. Uh, of a racial child you know you can read this book at any time because you're going to discover a little bit of your own lost identity in it you know in that parallel journey so it's absolutely it is it's it's a book for all seasons really it mm. has it, it, it may be what i love is that it was a, that it was required reading in a literature course um because that had nothing to do with identity and had nothing to do with adoption. It was just the way it was written and the way it was written as a story unfolding that, um, that gave it meaning. Mm -hmm. But obviously the, uh, the subtext, the underlying current in the story is that it is uh, a memoir of love and lost identity. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of love there. There's a lot of love in there. Yes. I mean, that's something but you still. didn't have a shortage of. It was just more the identity that you had the problem with. Yes, that was what ended up being the issue. Right. And I think, you know, a lot But of thank you that. so much for allowing me to talk about my book. Oh, no, my I pleasure, really my appreciate pleasure. that tremendously. And, uh, you know, thank you for sharing that with us. And, you know, I highly recommend people get the book um, and discover some issues that they may be having within themselves that they didn't know was there. But especially if you do know somebody who has uh, done an adoption, you know, whether it is a, a child of another race or just of another culture, it's a good book to read. So thank you very much for coming and sharing with it uh, with it us today. And you can get it at Amazon, uh, at Cantana Tully, or splittattheroot.com, and Facebook at Split at the Root, 
Um, and then, of course, yes. Rita C. Tully is 26. So everything's here on the posting. And so they can reach out to you. They can share their, um, um, their opinion of the book and uh, the testimony. And uh, thank you so much for being with us here today. Thank you. Thank you so much. Okay, folks. Oh, my pleasure. Okay, folks. So you know, it's nothing is quote black and white. Everything has got a uh, got a story, and when we choose to look at what that story is and on the levels, on the layers, we have a better understanding. And when we have a better understanding, we have a better perspective. So until next time. <laughs>